We are in the midst of a series called Too Good to Be True, where we're talking about the issue of grace and that it seems really too good to be true, but in truth, it is. And today we're going to look at something really cool. But before we do that, I just want to kind of talk to you about something. Um, you know, when, uh, when you look at me, I know one of the first words that comes to mind when you see me is old-fashioned, right? Okay, maybe not. But when it comes to dating, Susan and I dated and courted and got married in a very old-fashioned way. We met each other in person was the first time we ever saw each other. We were friends. We talked. We went out on dates together. And then, after we had been friends for a while and been on a few dates, we decided that it was time for us to talk about marriage. And we got engaged. And then we got... And after engagement, we went through the planning of the wedding and we got married. That is so old-fashioned today. You realize that there are more single people in America today than there are married adults. First time in history. Somewhere in the 80 to 85 to 87 million range of single adults. And well over half of them are not trying to find people to date through traditional methods. How do they look for them today? Online, right? Online dating is the new norm. In fact, of those um, over 80 million single adults, somewhere close to 50 to 60 million single adults are on dating services like eHarmony that has somewhere around 16 million or this one, which is the most popular match.com. All right. And here's the thing that's interesting about all of that. Okay. This, we don't have a lot of deep research and data because it's really just kind of been popular for the last 10 years or so. But what's interesting is some of the data coming out about people that meet on match.com or meet on eHarmony.com, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, there's a little bit of a stigma with that. Well, what they've discovered is, and these are marriages that happen, roughly one third of marriages today, and that's rising, started in online dating. What they've discovered is, this is just data from 2005 to 2011 or so, that when those people meet online and date and then get married, first of all, they marry much more quickly. The average courtship period, engagement period, or from meeting to marriage is about 18 months. Traditionally, is like three and a half years. And what they've discovered is that their marriages are lasting longer and they have a higher satisfactory rate than those that met live. But it doesn't always work out. In 2007, there was a guy that was named by a website the worst person in the world, and it came from something that happened on Match.com. All right, so he was online. He had a he had a, a, a username of Ivy League alum. That was his name. Impressive. Had a picture of himself. He described himself. And there was this young lady that decided she looked at the profile. She liked him. And I I don't know about this. You know, I'm old fashioned. I don't know how this works. But she winked at him. All right. She winked at him. All right. He responded and gave some details about himself, some important, some having nothing to do with what needed to be known. All right. And he said, I have three questions for you. Where did you go to school? What products do you like? And what do you do to keep in shape? She, for whatever reason, decided no, not interested. And just right back. No, thanks. Seemingly the end of it. But for him, it wasn't the end. This is what he wrote back to her. I think you forgot how this works. You hit on me and therefore have to impress me. 
and put my criteria and standards, not vice versa. Six pictures of just your head and your inability to answer a simple question lets me know one thing. You are not in shape. Nice guy here, right? He goes, oh, he's not done. He's just getting started. I am a trainer on the side, in fact. And I'm heading to the gym in 26 minutes. So next time you meet a guy of my caliber, instead of trying to turn it around, just get to the gym. Nice guy here, all right? Then he finishes with this. I will even give you one free training session. Yeah, woo. So you don't blow it with the next 8.9 on Hot or Not. Anybody remember Hot or Not? That's a long time ago. Ivy League grad, Mensa member, can bench squat, leg press over 1,200 pounds, has had lunch with the Secretary of Defense, has an MBA from the top school in the country, drives a Beamer convertible, has been in 14 major motion pictures, was in Jezebel's best dressed, etc. Oh, that's right. There aren't any more of those. I don't know if he's still single, but if he's still doing that, there's a good chance. But here's the thing about John Fitzgerald. Anybody wants to go look him up? His name's John Fitzgerald, all right? John got a little... A little nasty, didn't he? But here's the thing. He's just defending himself. He got rejected. Felt like he needed to throw his resume out there for him. And let's be honest, some of this is kind of impressive. I mean, who has lunch with the Secretary of Defense? Maybe John. I don't know. That's what he says. MBA from best school in the country. I mean, been in 14 major mo- I mean, Some of that's impressive. What's, imp- what's not impressive is what he thinks of his resume. So even if the resume is impressive, what he thinks of it is not. One of the things that happens when you and I are brought into the circle of grace that we talked about last week is that if we're not careful, we start piling up those tickets and we become impressed with what we have instead of what Christ has done. We start looking at the people around us and like there is nobody else like me. And we start thinking, you know what, if people would just think like me, it would be a lot better world. And so what happens is, you know, last week we talked about there's only two kinds of people in the world, those that are outside the circle of grace of Jesus and those that are inside the circle of grace. That sounds good in theological terms. That sounds good in a sermon. But you and I, most of the time, don't live that way. We think it's better to be here than there because that means we have somehow earned something there. Remember last week we talked about that inside this circle of grace, it doesn't matter who you are or how you got here, if you stumbled across the line or you think you're walking exactly close to Jesus, that in the circle of grace, the same amount of grace is applied to every single person, no matter who you are. The problem is, we don't live that way. And like John, sometimes we feel like we have to defend ourselves. Somebody makes us feel bad about who we are and we think we have to defend ourselves. We notice somebody else out there that's doing something just a little bit worse than what we would do. And we start to defend ourselves in our own mind. In fact, what I've discovered is a lot of times when you're inside this circle, there are a couple of things that we do to each other that are just ungraceful. And the first thing is we compare ourselves. We look around and we try to find somebody that we can compare ourselves to. And we say, Whoa, look, I'm, I'm not so bad in that area. And what I've always discovered is when you compare yourself and your spiritual walk with other people, you're always looking for people that aren't as far along as you think you are. Well, I remember. Whew, I mean, I, I know I'm not perfect, but have you heard what she is doing? You will not believe what happened the other day, what she said, where she went, who he was with. And the problem in comparing ourselves when we're inside the circle is that we never pick the right comparison. It's kind of like this. Let me show you a picture real quick. This is a picture from this last week. 
There's two really good looking people here and then me. And this is my my daughter, Maddie. Maddie, who is five years old and Maddie, who registered for kindergarten on Friday. So she starts kindergarten next year. And this is us in that registration process. Now, here's the thing about Maddie. I love Maddie. She is brilliant, beautiful, smart, um, fun, crazy, all those things. And I know a lot of things about Maddie. I know that she loves to sing the songs from Annie and will sing them at a moment's notice. I know that she loves Elsa out of Frozen above anybody else right now and characters and she would love to see them. I, I know that she loves to be announced in our living room to perform for us. I know that she started to love soccer. She loves to go out there and play. She's taken ballet. And you know something else that I know? If she decides to take up basketball, I can absolutely annihilate her in basketball. I mean, just annihilate. She can't dribble very well. I just steal the ball every time. She tries to lay up. I just swat it away, wag the finger, not in my house. I mean, when it comes to basketball, there is no comparison between me and Madeline. None. Domination all over. I mean, if I could jump that high, I could dunk on her and she couldn't do anything about it. Rain and jump shots, layups, crossovers, behind the backs. Because even if I mess it up, she can't get it. Now, that's all well and good. If I just compare myself to Maddie all the time, I could be convinced myself I was an unbelievable basketball player. If this guy walks into the gym, I got issues. <laughs> right? Those roles reverse a little bit. He's dominating me. He's dunking on me, and he ain't got to lower the rim to get it done. I mean, just absolute, total domination. If I compare myself in basketball to Maddie, I'm going to win every time. If I compare myself in basketball to the king, I'm getting annihilated. When it comes to your Christian walk, you ever notice that you like to pick the Maddies of the faith to compare yourself to? When Scripture says that the only comparison we have, we talked about this in Sunday school, I taught this morning, the, the maturity standard we have is the fullness of the King. Now, I'm not saying that LeBron James is in some way equal to Jesus. What I am saying is there's no way to compare myself to him. There's no need to compare. The problem is we don't just compare ourselves to other people. We then decide that people that aren't doing what we think they ought to do not only should be compared, they should be condemned. And we start to look around and say, I just don't think a follower of Jesus would ever say that. I don't think anybody that follows Jesus would ever really do that kind of thing or say what she said or be where he was. It's not just, hey, they're a little not as far along on their walk with me. They haven't learned as much as me. It's like, I don't even know if they're saved. They don't fit into my system what I think a follower of Jesus Christ ought to look like. They must not be saved. Luke chapter 7. If you've got a Bible, you can turn there. If not, it's going to be on the screen. We're going to encounter a guy who thought he was in the circle and compared and condemned everyone around him. But we'll find out by the end of the story. The problem was he wasn't in the circle at all. Starting in verse 33. It says, For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you say, 
He has a demon. Jesus says, listen, my cousin, John, y'all know John the Baptist. You condemned him. And part of the reason you condemned him is because he was so crazy. He, he lived out in the woods, um, gluten-free diet, no bread, none of that kind of stuff. Didn't drink any wine. He was Baptist to the core. And you said, that guy's got a demon. Then Jesus says, the son of man's come eating and drinking. You say, look at him. John didn't drink anything. This guy drinks with sinners and tax collectors. You call me a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus is saying here, listen, you are condemning anybody that doesn't fit in your neat little box. That doesn't fit your system. That doesn't do what you think they should do. This is immediately followed by a story. What happens is Jesus is invited to the house of a Pharisee that wants to eat with him. What's interesting about that is we don't really know why the Pharisee invited Jesus to eat. And if you've been around much or you've been in the church much, you know that about in New Testament times when Jesus comes along, his biggest adversaries on the earth are um, Pharisees. And he's constantly in dialogue and debate with them because they had a very strict understanding of what happened when you came to, to follow God. And Jesus was kind of blowing that out of the water. And so one of them invites Jesus. We don't know if he was generally interested. Maybe he thought, listen, maybe this guy's the Messiah. We've been looking for the Messiah. Let me ask him some questions um, from the way we see him treated a little bit later. We don't think that's the case. I personally think that he brought him there to trap him, to get him to say something, to do something, to to make a mistake, according to the Pharisees, that they could hold over him, that they could convince the people. You don't need to follow Jesus. But one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him and Jesus went. It wasn't just that he, he ate with tax collectors and sinners. The truth is, Jesus apparently didn't turn down a meal. They reclined. At the table. Now, here's here's what it is. This happened at the the Last Supper and happened at important meals. At important meals, you wouldn't sit at the table. They had tables that were um, about this high from the ground, and you would lay on the ground with your arm or elbow like beside you, and you would eat with your hand with your feet out behind you. So everybody in the table that is around is leaning on his shoulder, lounging, reclining at the table, eating and talking. He went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner when she learned that Jesus was reclining at a table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing beside him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, we're going to stay there for just a second, because here's what I want you to understand. This is not really acceptable in any civilization. We're going to talk about some specifics for their civilization. But what she did is really not acceptable in any civilization. I mean, imagine, if you will, after this, we all decide, hey, let's just eat lunch together down in the Family Life Center. And we get tables up and we're sitting at the tables. And suddenly this woman comes flying in, immodestly dressed, not appropriately dressed at all, and comes flying in, hair down, and runs up to one of the men sitting around the table and begins to cry on his feet and wipe it with her hair and then takes perfume and starts pouring it out on his feet. Can you imagine the discussion at the other tables if that was happening? What in the world is she doing? His wife is not going to like that. What is, who is that? So, I mean, let's just start by being honest here. This isn't normal for anybody, right? I mean, if this happened here on Wednesday night or Sunday, when somebody ran in right now and started to do this, some of you would be like, do I need to do something about that? Is something going on? What's happening? But in their society, there are a couple of things that make this even worse. 
First of all, this woman is a sinner. Now, this isn't like we talk about it, like we are sinners saved by grace. We're all sinners. It's, it's a glorious thing that Jesus has rescued us from our sin. When she's called a sinner, that means she was really good at it. Like the best thing she was good at in her life is sinning. It was a profession to her, and literally it may have been a profession to her. The code word here for them may be that she made a life out of sinning. So much so that she was able to have an expensive flask of ointment. People in their day and time, their feet, some of you that have been to Brazil can understand this. Some of you have been to Brazil can see this. Their feet would have been cracked and dry. They walked around all the time, open-toed. They had things all the time that were, that were problematic. They, they walked on dirty, dingy, nasty streets. And in the sand and all that was happening, it, it just was cracked or needed ointment. And so when she comes, this ointment is something to kind of help. And she's got a flask of it, which means that it's expensive. And then she comes into the house where she's not supposed to be. Sinners did not come into men's house during the day. Women were not to be seen during the day unless absolutely necessary. They had rules about women could work. And what they said is do your work, but don't be seen. If that means you have to work at night when people are in bed, then do so. And she's weeping. His feet are wet with the tears that she has, and she wipes them with the hair of her head. We've talked about this before, but in their society, letting your hair down was one of the worst things a woman could do. It was equivalent of someone coming in not wearing any clothes today. Now imagine the stir if we're down in the Family Life Center and somebody comes in without any clothes on doing that. It was unheard of. It was considered immodest. It was considered wrong. It was considered the lowest form of humanity to do that in public. And she anoints him with the ointment and kisses his feet over and over again. Here's what I like about this woman. She has no care in the world about what these guys think. Now, the truth is, she probably really didn't have a care because everybody already thought what they wanted to think. She had no way out. In their society, there was no way for her reputation to be cleaned. And she extravagantly gives to Jesus. It doesn't make them very happy at all. Here's what the host says. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if, like, I'll have questions perhaps, but now I know this guy's not a prophet. If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what was sort of woman this is who was touching him. She is a sinner. His point is no woman should be touching him. Secondly, no respectable woman should be touching him. So if this woman's touching him, he should know who she is. He should have understanding from God who she is. And he would not let her touch him. Our religious system says that this isn't appropriate. So she can't be close to God. And neither can he. Jesus, knowing what he thought, says, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher, go ahead, say what you want to say. And Jesus gives a parable. Three lines, one question that absolutely destroys him. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, just so you know, somewhere between 80 and 100 thousand dollars. The other 50, somewhere around 8 thousand. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love you more? Let me ask you a quick question, okay? This is not rocket science. If you have a $100,000 house debt 
and somebody comes and pays that off for you, are you going to be more excited about that or if they paid off your $350 credit card debt? House debt, right? Y'all didn't respond very well. If y'all want to do that for me, go ahead, all right? Like if you suddenly got something in the mail that said your $150 credit card bill has been paid, you go, that's pretty cool. Somebody did that. That's awesome. If you get something in the mail that said somebody has paid off your house and left you with the title and deed, you are going to freak out, right? Jesus says, which one will love him more? I love how the Pharisee responds because he doesn't want to really give Jesus the benefit of answering him. But he says, the one, I suppose, who had the larger debt. And Jesus kind of says, for once today, you're right. You got it right. Then Jesus says this. I love this. Turning toward the woman, not Simon, toward the woman. He says, do you see her? Simon, quick, over here. Do you see her? The truth is, Simon probably wouldn't look at her. In that day and time, there were... Pharisees and priests who were so serious about not looking at a woman that could lead them into temptation that they would close their eyes and walk with blinders on their head and they were called the bruised and bleeding prophets because they kept running into stuff. And so when Jesus says, do you see this woman? Simon's probably like, I don't need to, Jesus. I don't, I don't, I, no, I don't, I don't need to. I know who she is. I know what she does. I don't need to look at her. I am keeping my purity right here, Jesus. Jesus says, do you see her? Look, I came into my house and you didn't give me anything to wash my feet with. Jesus doesn't even say you didn't wash my feet. He just says you didn't give me anything to wash my feet with. In that day and time, nasty, dirty, stinky feet. Always walking in the streets. Always walking in streets where animals trod. Always walking in the midst of what animals left. And when you came to eat lunch, most people don't like to eat lunch with that kind of smell wafting through the room. You ever sat at a table or in an area with like a teenage boy who takes his shoes off? Like, right? You want to eat in that environment? Like, woo! Get me some of that, right? Like, Jesus says, you didn't give me anything to wash my feet. That's just normal decency. He then says, you gave me no kiss. Just so you know, in their day and time, when you came in, no matter who you were, boy, girl, uh, man, woman, you, you kissed each other on the cheek. It was like shaking hands or giving a hug today, Okay. And she has to stop kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil. Something they would do, to, again, to help that smell. Like, let's spray a little perfume on you. You know, do the spray and walk through method if you need to. Just something to make you feel better about eating. But she anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. You and I do not understand the scandal of that statement in that moment. You see, we've read this story so many times. We're like, yeah, she's the good person. Jesus is supposed to forgive her sins. Ooh, that Pharisee, he's the bad guy. Jesus Jesus loves people. He's going to take care of them. But in that moment, in that place, it was the most offensive thing Jesus could have said about her. He doesn't say, now get up and go make something of yourself. He doesn't say, now get up and go do something better with your life. What he says is, your sins are forgiven. Let me ask you a question. What has she said to Jesus to warrant him saying that? What has she said? Nothing. 
Not a single word has come out of her mouth. She doesn't repent of her sins. She doesn't ask Jesus to come into her life. She doesn't walk down an aisle. She doesn't do those formulaic things. She is just weeping at his feet. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. She did nothing to deserve it. And that is the scandal of grace. Here's the truth. And you and I don't see it always. But it made them mad. And if we saw it played out in today, it makes some of you mad too. Those are the tabers said, who is this guy? He thinks he can forgive sins. How ridiculous is that? Jesus is done with them. He turns to her and says, your face saved you. Go, leave, go in peace. Here's what we have to understand. Grace is offensive. It's offensive to our normal way of life. It's offensive to our give and get kind of syndrome. It's offensive to I work and as a result I get rewarded. It's offensive in every possible way to how you and I try to make people think that we are good and righteous and on the right track in our life. It's messy. It's dirty. It's muddy. It's not clean and simple. If you're involved in ministry that really is grace, you're going to be involved with people that you never imagined being involved with. You're going to have to deal with issues and things you never thought you'd have to deal with. And if you're not, that means that you're giving off some semblance of the gospel that is not complete grace. You're telling people they got to clean up before they come. You're telling people that they can't do certain things for Jesus to accept them. Here's the way one author, Doug Wilson, said. Grace is wild. Grace unsettles everything. Grace overflows the banks. Grace messes up your hair. Grace is not tame. In fact, unless we are making the devout nervous, we are not preaching grace as we ought to. Jesus came and showed grace that was wild and untamed and unleashed. Here is probably a prostitute woman of the city, known as a center, who comes in in completely inappropriate ways, does nothing to deserve anything from God. And in the midst of all of that, Jesus just simply says to her, you're free. Well, did she change her life after that? I don't have any clue. And it doesn't matter. Because it's not dependent on what she does. It's dependent on what Jesus does. And Jesus says, you're free. You're done. It's over. Our circle illustration. The truth is, once you're inside the gray circle, there's no level inside of there. There is absolutely nothing you can do to earn the love of God any more than you can to earn the salvation of God. It's complete grace. And that's why grace is offensive to us. Grace is offensive to us because it is uncontrollable. I've been teaching classes at Union in Hendersonville a couple of semesters now. You know what I find interesting is the students, they're good students or adults, are coming back to school. I had a great time, great time teaching. But they all want to know, is this important for the test? Like when we're taking notes and I write something on the board, it's like, hey, do we, is that going to be on the test? Is that going to be... Uh, When's that going to be on the test? See, for them, the whole class, you know what for me the class is about? Like, what are you here to teach the class about? It's about knowledge and the journey together. It's about learning all this stuff together. To them, you know what it's about? I want to grade and I want to get out of here. And so every time we're in there, it's like, 
I just, I just want, um, is, this, uh, is, this, is this on the test? Like, I'll write stuff on the board. Do we need to write that down? Sure, you ought to write down for your own personal knowledge and satisfaction, whether it's on the test or not. Last semester, I gave a study guide out two weeks before the test. And on the week before the test, the full week before the test, I said, let me change a couple of things on your study guide. Oh, what? What are you, what are you doing? What is, you're, you're adding stuff to, you can't, you can't add stuff to the, I'm going to add stuff to the study guide. I'm the teacher, yes. You know why? It's because they feel completely out of control. I've thought about just going in sometime and going, I see you a study guide. Those are some pretty good ideas. Here's a completely different test. Have fun. Are you like, that is not nice at all, right? Because they want to control it. They want to know. They want to have a grasp on what do I need to know to pass? What do I need to write down on a sheet of paper when it comes down to get my grade? How do I get past this class? And many of us treat the Christian life like that. How many Bible studies do I need to do? What do I need to pray? How do I need to go this way? How do I need to do that way? Just tell me what's on the test, God. Just tell me how many points I need to get over here. And grace means you can't control it. And it leads me to one final question and we're done. Here's the question. Since you don't have to do anything from God, what do you want to do? See, here's the reality. And I can get up here on Sunday mornings and I can preach and tell you the best practices or what Scripture teaches about drawing close to the Lord, about drawing near to Him. And the truth is, once you're in that grace circle, once Jesus has forgiven you, this is the scandal of grace, you don't have to do anything else for God. You don't have to do anything to get there. You don't have to do to keep it. But the question is, What do you want to do? Remember the parable? The one who had been forgiven a lot? And here's the thing. Don't for a minute think you're the Pharisee that's got a little bit to be forgiven. In fact, that wasn't even Jesus' point. His point to the Pharisee was, we're all like the woman. If he has forgiven every bit that you ever have done or will do, and you don't have to do anything to deserve it, what do you want to do? And my guess is this. My guess is that woman walked out of there a changed woman. I don't know that for sure, but there's some evidence there in Scripture that that's the case. And that for the rest of her life, she wanted to follow and serve Jesus with all that she had because she didn't have to do anything to get his forgiveness. What it means to follow Jesus is to come to terms with this question, what do you want to do? Let's pray together.